This is Gil Manser, welcoming you to the January 2018 Word-by-Word Conversations with Writers broadcast from North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today, we travel back 112 years to join the hardy young men who spent a year and a day collecting specimens on the Galapagos Islands for the California Academy of Sciences. We are able to make the journey through the thoughts and research of Professor Matthew J. James and his book, Collecting Evolution, the Galapagos Expedition that Vindicated Darwin. Dr. James is the chair of the Sonoma State University Department of Geology, a fellow of the California Academy of Sciences, and winner of the San Francisco Maritime Museum Library's Carl Cortum Award for Maritime History. Raised on Oahu, he received his high honors BS degree in biology from the University of Hawaii and earned his PhD in paleontology at UC Berkeley. He is a science advisor to the Galapagos Conservancy and is a governing member of the General Assembly of the Charles Darwin Foundation. During 2016 and 17, he served as president of the Pacific Division of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Matthew J. James, I want to welcome you to Word by Word. Thank you very much, Gil. The phrase, Vindicated Darwin, is an essential part of your book's title. Could you share a brief background about Charles Darwin, his voyage to the Galapagos Islands, his theory of evolution, and the status of that theory today, all in less than five minutes? Sure. Not a a problem at all. Let me dive right in. Well, one of the things about Darwin's voyage to Galapagos was that you sort of associate him with these birds called Darwin's finches. Well, it turns out that historians of science have long documented that Darwin didn't get it right with the finches when he was there and that that work was done by others after he got back to England. Okay, let's stop here a little bit because we need to understand the Galapagos is a chain, I guess you would call of islands. Sure, an archipelago. Archipelago, different sizes. Uh-huh. And what happened because of the distance between the islands, the there was natural selection on each one. And True. So am I correct in that? That is absolutely correct. And so that the species had variations, significant variations, between one island to the to the other. They did, but he didn't notice that at first. Okay. So what did he notice? He was interested in collecting birds, um, specimens in general, plants. And so when he collected the birds that he did, um, he put them all in the same bag. He would have um, stuffed them, gotten their guts out, stuffed them. Because they're all finches. Because they're all finches, and he collected other birds as well. And he um, prepared them the way field collectors always do, by um, essentially filling them up with um, stuffing, like cotton, uh, so they don't rot. Mm -hmm. And then didn't note which island the different birds were on. Really? Brought those back in a bag, a canvas bag, to England. Showed them to um, a person who was an expert in birds um, named John Gould. And John Gould determined, oh, that these birds are actually uh, very important, not seen anywhere else in the world. And ironically, it was the captain of the Beagle, uh, Robert Fitzroy, who also collected birds while they were there in the Galapagos. And Fitzroy did label with a little ankle tag um, the bird from each island. Mm. And it was really Fitzroy's specimens that were more useful to John Gould than Darwin's specimens. And as I recall, the beak shape was one of the major uh, determinants because of what they would have to eat. Is that correct? That, that was correct. But again, that story all emerged later. And, um, and, and so the, the point that would really connect 
this 1905-06 expedition to Darwin was that in the 1905-06, they collected quite a few specimens of Darwin's finches, all of which are still available for study in San Francisco. Right. And that collection was used just before World War II by an Englishman named David Lack. Ah. And Lack put together one very substantial publication in which he made an interpretation totally different than the interpretation you might read about today. He said that the beaks were used by the finches to tell them themselves apart, to tell one species from another. So in the world of evolution, that would be a species recognition um, aspect of their anatomy. I thought anatomy. it was dependent on the seeds or other things that and they ate. The seed story comes later. Ah. But Lack originally published an entire thick monograph, scientific monograph, saying, here are these birds, here's why they have these beaks. That was published as an occasional paper of the California Academy of Sciences. And then World War II went by, and mm -hmm. Lack went off to work for the English, uh, for, the, for the UK Army. Um, and later after the war, he published in 1947 a totally different interpretation, saying that the beaks were used for feeding uh, on different kinds of fruits, flowers, seeds, insects. And that's when the story of the beaks emerged, but not initially, and uh, not, not by Darwin. It, that story is not pieced together by Darwin at all. But the birds are called Darwin's finches starting in 1935, mm -hmm. which is 100 years after yeah. Darwin visits the Galapagos in 1835. And then it's not until 1947 that the book called Darwin's Finches was published by David Lack, and then the birds took took off and became much more famous. So we're at Darwin not differentiating the birds as to where they, you know, their terrain, where they came from, uh, coming back with all the birds in a bag kind of thing. And then what happened? When Darwin... Did he decide he's going to sit down and write a world-shaking uh, treatise on, on world perspective? No, not exactly. <laughs> uh, for Darwin, the the transformation was gradual from a position that he held when he was in the Galapagos, which is really what you could say is a creationist perspective, mm -hmm. um, being an adherent of the Bible, uh, of says. The Bible and right. uh, and uh, um, and that, that's that perspective. It was only after he returned to England that he started looking at his specimens and he got this information about the plants, he got information on the birds, other, other organisms, that his thinking changed. And so he kept a series of these little notebooks. And one can look at these notebooks that are still preserved and find almost the exact day in which he has this kind of you know, aha wow. moment where he says, all this really only makes sense in another light. Mm. And uh, from then on out, he is writing about uh, evolution. So there's, it's very clear when he internally converted over, no one, no one tries to, you know, enforce this on him, um, but he does have this change of thinking. In fact, just the well, opposite. They're trying to have him stay with the, with the uh, creationist assumptions. Well, sure, but when he gets back from the Beagle voyage, he's very private, right? He's, he's not really talking publicly about any of this. So when he comes back from the Beagle, he is a public geologist oh. and a private biologist. Oh. And only later does he undergo a transformation to becoming a public biologist. And so many people don't know that Darwin was first and foremost a geologist. And so in my department at Sonoma State, we take great pride in the fact that we can claim Darwin as one of our own. One of yours. He's, he's not necessarily well, you, you the biology in, guy. You teach in Darwin Hall, I think, don't you? I do indeed. Yeah. Which is a 
interest and also the fact that Darwin was one of the first honorary members of the California Academy of Sciences. Exactly so, yes, during his lifetime in about 1872 or so. So tell me about the vindication Mm -hmm. that this uh, expedition, which was in 1905-1906, just prior, they arrived just after the 1906 earthquake with, you know? They left in June of 1905, and they sailed to the islands, always intending to have a 17-month expedition. Mm -hmm. They're in the islands, as you mentioned, for a year and a day. Mm -hmm. And while they're in the islands, the great San Francisco earthquake occurs. They return home um, to a ruined city with all of these specimens that then help to rebuild, literally and figuratively from the ashes, the California Academy of Sciences, Mm -hmm. which originally was on Market Street. Right. Not in Golden Gate Park. There's some wonderful photographs in your book. Thank you. um, That you've carefully selected and annotated. And and anyone who needs to look at the original source material can find where it came from. It's very easily done. So um, the vindication. Mm -hmm. Tell me what – where was Darwin in 1905? What were people thinking about him? Right. At that time, um, there was not complete a conversion, if you want to say. There was not complete acceptance of the notion of natural selection, but there was acceptance of evolution. So you really have to decouple these two ideas, the idea of evolution and then what is the mechanism that accounts for it. So evolution was well accepted, well entrenched in scientific thinking, but the mechanism was not completely worked out. So there could have been other options in 1905 for uh, the change that takes place over time in species. And it was really um, later than 1905, into the 1920s and into the 1930s, when work was done on chromosomes and genetic material and and crossing of fruit flies in particular in places like Columbia University in, in, uh, um, in New York City and Gregor Mendel working on peas. Um, And and so there is a story that comes after 1905-06, which is a further development of the notion of how evolution operates, how it works, what its mechanism is. So would Darwin have had a geological perspective on evolution originally? He he did have a geological perspective. So we assume that, you know, something happened cataclysmically on the planet. The dinosaurs died out. That's why they were taken over by others, eventually mammals, et cetera, et cetera. Right, and and perhaps during Darwin's lifetime, he would not have fully understood why or even when the dinosaurs died out. It was it was that even that body of knowledge was still growing. Mm-hmm. Dinosaurs were known, mm-hmm. but uh, not that much about when and why they went extinct, why they disappeared, and so. You know, for Darwin, it's a you know it's a, it's it's literally an, an evolving process when he his ideas are changing uh, during his lifetime. I remember one book particularly uh, well, apparently, because I read one from the Time Life uh, series, one called Evolution, which you mentioned in your book as being a uh, an interesting volume to start with because it had lots of pictures and lots of charts and graphs. It's a it's a book that that uh, people of our generation would know quite well. Our, my parents subscribed to that mm-hmm. series of books. It occupied maybe a foot or a foot and a half of shelf space yep. with other volumes on the forest and the rivers and in the sea and and deserts. And the the book about Galop, about evolution rather has on the cover uh, a rocky scene in the ocean with a couple of marine iguanas and a couple of bright red Sally Lightfoot crabs. Mm-hmm. And so here I am growing up on the south shore of Oahu, um, 
um, in a place where evolution has been very, very important in telling that biological story and um, reading about the Galapagos and reading about Darwin. But then you have to fast forward to when I'm in graduate school and about 35 years ago when I first went to the Galapagos for the first of about 12 trips. Mm -hmm. And I later found out that that cover photo of that book uh, was taken by a person named Bob Bowman. And uh, Bob Bowman became my friend and my colleague and my mentor. And my book is dedicated to Bob right. Bowman, yes. who was known as the Dean of Galapagos Science for his some 52 years of work on Darwin's finches. Wow, interesting. So tell us a little bit about the Galapagos and what, when you come off of the coast of Ecuador and head towards, I assume that's where most people come from. Yes, and head towards the islands, what do you see? Well, if you are flying in, everyone flies in. Uh, people don't arrive uh, by generally ship. by ship. No, because um, there aren't many landing spots, right? There aren't, and um, what people do is they fly in and they uh, then get on board a boat, usually. There, huh. there are some... There is some land-based tourism, but the model of tourism that grew up in the Galapagos was really the opposite of the model of tourism that grew up in the Hawaiian Islands. In Hawaii, there are large mega resorts where you can stay and eat and play golf and tennis and, and all that sort of thing, all in one place without ever leaving. Mm -hmm. But in Galapagos, they had a conscious decision to have boat-based tourism. And so everyone gets on a boat and, and travels around. But when you first arrive in the Galapagos and you look down on them, the, what they, they look like um, walnut shells on a, on a dark blue plate. Really? So they're, they're brown like a walnut shell. And um, if you can imagine the blue plate being the ocean, uh, they sort of look that so way. So they don't have the volcanic uh, uplift that the Hawaiian Islands do in contrast. Uh, they, they are volcanic, just right. like the Hawaiian Islands, uh, but they don't have as many of the spectacular cliffs and, and valleys no and, Nepali. and things like No Nepali Cliff on the island of Kauai. Exactly. All right. Right. Interesting. So when you first arrived, you went with a uh, crew of other students, right? I went with other professors, Professors. Ah. I was a graduate student. Okay. I was the only student who went. And uh, we had uh, an invitation to participate in studying fossils in the islands. So we were what we would have called then, and we still do now, the first paleontology expedition to the Galapagos. <laughs> and uh, we were walking literally in the footsteps of the eight young men from the mm -hmm. 1905-06 expedition. And in fact, we went to their field notes to find out where it was that they had collected fossils. And then we went straight back to those places mm -hmm. as we traveled around in a small boat. Yeah, you, you have uh, recreated parts of the log, uh, the daily, daily activities, and then a summary at the end of them, you know, real so it's easy to go back and see what happened in sequence, which is very helpful for the reader. This is from Collecting Evolution. And the, um, but why don't you let our listeners know a little bit about these eight men? We have a photograph of almost all of them. The cook is not in the photo. And the these uh, so-called eight young men. This is a term coined by the director of the California Academy of Sciences at the time, mm -hmm. uh, uh, a bird expert, right. uh, Leverett Mills Loomis. And he uh, wanted to put together this expedition in order to bolster the reputation of the academy. Okay, let's talk about a little, I guess we need to go back a little bit before then, the Academy itself and how that started. And there was an interesting story you told about one of the presidents or leaders of the Academy who was shot dead in the streets of San Francisco this because is, of a gambling debt? This is true. This is true. Um, all Different that, time and place. All that is, all that and more is in the book. <laughs> but... 
But from a scientific point of view, oh, not from okay. that sort of you yes. know, sensationalist point of view, the Academy started as a group of men um, who were scientists who met for a long time. So the Academy had oh, oh, 20 or 30 years of existence in which they really didn't have much going for them. They would meet by candlelight in a church basement and give papers and discuss their science. And it Gentlemen was, scientists? Gentlemen scientists, exactly. And um, so uh, that would be uh, a way to 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 exist, and they always had financial troubles, and and they you know didn't really have a lot of members, uh, but they existed for year after year, decade after decade. Uh, they eventually decided to allow women to join, and that was probably both an enlightened move on their part, uh, but also a pragmatic one because then they could have more members and mm-hmm. more membership dues. Right. And so they, they really So they had, were dependent on membership dues they primarily? They were very much dependent. They had no real source of income, so there was no way to expand until they received a bequest, a financial oh. bequest from James Lick. And that name should be familiar to people of the Bay Area because his name appears in several spots. There was a freeway in San Francisco that was destroyed and torn down after the Loma Prieta earthquake, the Mm -hmm. James Lick Freeway that was along the Embarcadero in San Francisco. There's um, a telescope and observatory at the top of Mount Hamilton, um, the Lick Observatory run by the University of California. Uh, Mount Hamilton is just near San Jose Mm -hmm. in the South Bay. And there are other things related to James Lick in the Bay Area. But uh, James Lick was a very wealthy landowner and and, um, developer. At one point, James Lick owned, for example, all of Catalina Island. Island right. off the southern coast of uh, Southern California coast, and and Lick was perhaps uh, very bitter at the end of his life, and he was going to build a pyramid mm-hmm. in his honor. He had a real pyramid scheme, as you say, a real pyramid scheme that was going to be larger than the Great Pyramid at Giza in Egypt, and it was going to be on Market Street mm-hmm. between Fourth and Fifth, and this pyramid was he a Mason? Uh, whether. James I'm just Lick wondering Mason, because of the, I, the iconography. I'll, I'll of the have pyramid. to pass on his membership there, but the pyramid was very much a middle finger gesture to the world, <laughs> to to have himself remembered in this way. Right. To say, I have all this money, I own all this land, I'm going to build this this thing. It, it, and this is how you will remember. Is he me. going to be buried in it? That I don't know. Uh, I know that he is buried at the base of the telescope at the observatory at uh, Mount Hamilton. And I have made a special pilgrimage to kiss the grave of James Lick at the very base of the telescope by going down narrow staircases and winding pathways and, <laughs> and spiral staircases to the very, very base of the telescope. Wow. I had to slide under a, a low four-foot overhang through accumulated years of dust mm. where there was a clip-on lamp and a, and a plastic flower in a vase. You were, a you're talking really in the bowels of the... The rock of the mountain. Uh, exactly, exactly, and uh, and so I made that pilgrimage with some colleagues, uh, where we took a trip up there, and uh, I very much wanted to thank James Lick for having uh, allocated so much money to the Cal Academy. Therefore, they had a museum on Market Street between Fourth and Fifth, where there was no pyramid that they then needed to fill up with specimens. Right. Therefore, they had the 1905-06 expedition, and then bada boom, bada bing, bada bang. Before you know it, I have a book, and so I was very indebted to James Lick. And I, and I wanted to show that by, by kissing the grave of James Lick. And all my colleagues uh, took photos of me doing that, uh, uh, coated in a lot of dust and uh, uh, okay. in a very dark, I've got to ask you the question, because he obviously had a major change of heart. What happened? Mm. 
There was uh, a president of the California Academy of Sciences, George Davidson, who Mount Davidson Mount in Davidson, San Francisco yeah. is named after. And he basically convinced Lick to give his money to charitable causes. And one of which, one of the five major causes, and one of which was the California Academy of Sciences. Exactly. Including the land. And the land and, and money to build the building. Yep. So they built an office building and then a museum in the back. Mm -hmm. The office building was for doctors and dentists and accountants and that lawyers. That was the, the front the, the uh, facade, office, yeah, facade right on Market Street. Right on the street, yeah. And so that was an income-generating building. And then they had their museum, which was free, open to the public. And the public just loved their museum. They flocked there. They had a thriving group of scientific curators who needed more and better specimens in order to publish and to get the respect of East Coast institutions. Right. Uh, or even Midwest, uh, the Field Museum in Chicago, yes. the American Museum in New York City, even the Smithsonian um, Institutions like that had existed for much longer, and the Cal Academy needed to catch up. Um, although the Cal Academy is the, the 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 oldest scientific institution uh, west of the Mississippi, it so. didn't have the cred. It did not, and this expedition was a way to get cred. Okay, so we're 1905. We're bringing together the expedition leader who had been on some previous expeditions. Yes, and uh, tell us about him and several of the other people who stand out. Sure, that expedition leader's name was Rollo Beck, and uh, he was born in Los Gatos and had only about a seventh or eighth grade education, but he ended up being the most remarkable field collector you could ever imagine. He was extremely tough. He was extremely good at what he did. And Beck got his introduction to the Galapagos by being hired by Walter Rothschild mm -hmm. in England mm -hmm. to uh, participate in expeditions of, of the, the Rothschild banking family. Yeah. And Walter Rothschild had a home in a town called Tring, and uh, that, that home is still um, a museum. It's a branch of the Natural History Museum in London. Mm -hmm. And I visited there in May and uh, met all the curators. So the people there have a great interest in Rothschild, and I have a great interest in Rothschild. They all love Rollo Beck. I, I love Rollo Beck. And so we had a, we had a, we had a great uh, mutual admiration society uh, event going on there when I visited Tring. And uh, Beck even took live tortoises back to Tring in England. Um, and Walter Rothschild was kind of obsessed by tortoises, the giant ones in mm. particular, mm -hmm. but many other things, exotic birds like cassowaries and, you know, things like that. Yeah. So, um, so Beck got his start in that way. And when it came time for uh, the Cal Academy to put together an expedition, Beck was the leading figure in the field at the time. So he was the logical choice to be the expedition leader. And they then accumulated um, seven more of these, you know, so-called husky young men, as they said, uh, in their letters of request to places like Stanford, where they would say, do you have any husky young men that you mm -hmm. would like to mm -hmm. recommend for uh, this expedition duty? And they ended up getting two from Stanford who took a leave of absence from their undergraduate studies and went on the expedition and then both finished up later. Right. Uh, this was the, the insect guy and the, the geology paleontology guy. Uh, both did that from Stanford. You're, you're, as a segue, you're going to be doing a talk to the Stanford alumni on the 20th, is it? It's on Saturday, January 20th. Right. And I don't think that it's limited to Stanford alumni, but it's certainly um, their event. And it's going to be in Darwin Hall mm -hmm. on the Sonoma State University campus. And I'm very much looking forward to telling that that audience about the story of this book with my PowerPoint presentation. So tell me about the two Stanford uh, undergrads. Can, what were their names? Do you remember? I do. So uh, one of them was the geologist and paleontologist, and his name was Washington Henry Ochsner. 
And Ochsner? Ochsner, O-C-H-S-N-E-R okay. is his name. He went on the expedition, and then fast forward later, he discovered oil in the Kettleman Hills, which oh, is uh, yes. off of I-5, to the west of I-5, mm-hmm. down where all the cows are, if you ever encounter that odor of the cows. Kettleman City. Kettleman City and Koalinga That's and all where those the, things uh, are down the, there. What's the most famous thing in there is the... Uh, um, in and out hamburger, I think, as I remember. Could be. Could be. Because <laughs> it has City, a bathroom. It's th- very important. There's, there's an in and out in Kettleman City that I go to with my students every semester. Yeah, you so know the I, one. I know that one yes. quite well. But uh, so that was the – he was an undergraduate at Stanford. And uh, and uh, interestingly enough, Auctioner got into a huge multi-year um, fight um, about specimens that were collected during the expedition. And that story is really not told at length in the book because it happens after the expedition. Uh, but it's really Well, let's hold on to that because I want you to read something first because we need to look at why the specimens were collected and how. Sure. Okay, so I'm going to have you read something from the beginning close to in the prologue of your book. Um, it's about um, the man we've just been talking about who was the leader of the expedition, Beck, and he has gone to Narborough Island for collecting. Can you start there? I can indeed. Okay. So. Alone at the summit of the largest pristine island in the world, an island on which no known human had ever lived and from which no scientist had ever collected a single giant tortoise, Rollo Beck surveyed the vista for tortoises for several hours. He saw none. Big, brightly colored land iguanas were everywhere, but no tortoises. Being a shrewd tortoise collector, Beck descended the mountain to the area where he had previously found the tortoise dung. At that lower elevation, Beck quickly picked up the faint trail of a tortoise that had left tracks in the thin volcanic soil. Hot on its trail, Beck left his own footprints in the soil from his new pair of hobnail boots, although by now the jagged lava rock of Galapagos had completely worn down the hobnails. A few more steps down the narrow trail, Beck finally found the large, old, and apparently frustrated male tortoise and made biological history. Beck had reached the end of another long, hot day in the field. He sat down at sunset with the old tortoise grazing nearby. Unconcerned about Beck or anything else, the tortoise peacefully ate his last meal of brown Galapagos grass, taking big, purposeful, unhurried bites. Surveying the twilight vista, extending all the way down to the coast and off to the horizon, Beck ate his own dinner of hardtack, canned salmon, and canned sardines, and drank one of the cans of brewed coffee, all opened with his field knife. What Beck did next, ironically validated naturalists' predictions that time was running out for giant tortoises. He collected himself for a few minutes before starting his work. He was calm and professional about what he had to do next, what he was paid to do next. An experienced collector of tortoises and birds of all sizes, Beck was the internal dynamo of the Academy expedition and particularly skilled at collecting giant tortoises for natural history museums. This tortoise would be just like all the others he collected, and yet different. But the old male tortoise remained oblivious to Beck. Later, Beck wrote, quote, Going on some distance further, the old male was found slowly feeding on grass near the trail. Getting my pack, I ate supper and skinned the tortoise by moonlight. 
That lone tortoise, having survived for years in forced bachelorhood, came to embody naturalists' prophecies of extinction. The old male tortoise probably made many futile conjugal visits to the rounded female surrogate rock over the years, and Galapagos tortoises can easily live for 150 years. Those sad, unproductive couplings now symbolize human-caused changes in the archipelago's flora and fauna. Beck loomed over the tortoise holding a sizable knife, now worn dull from opening all the cans of food he had eaten over the past few days on Narborough and from use on other tortoises. His knife would transform the old male tortoise, who would never again fertilize the eggs of a female tortoise, from a living, breathing example of evolution into a one-of-a-kind museum specimen. All right, there's a lot going on in those few paragraphs, but we need to take a break. You have been listening to a tale of exploration and discovery on word-by-word conversations with writers from North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today, Professor Matthew J. James is guiding us back 112 years to join the hardy young men who spent a year and a day collecting specimens on the Galapagos Islands for the California Academy of Sciences. We are able to make the journey through the thoughts and research found in Professor Matthew James's book from Oxford Press, Collecting Evolution, the Galapagos Expedition that Vindicated Darwin. So stay tuned for another half hour of excitement and discovery right here on KRCB-FM. Okay, so let's go back. We've got a man. He knows that uh, this is probably the last large, if not the last period, um, tortoise on this particular island. Um, But his job is to collect specimens. And by that, he doesn't mean live specimens. He means things he can bring back and mount in the museum. Correct. And it's interesting to – it wouldn't necessarily be the last – but he knew it was the only, and there's a slight difference okay. there. He knew that no tortoise had ever been collected from that island. So from his perspective, this is the first, not the last. Oh, interesting. First he's ever heard of, first he's ever seen. He doesn't know it's the only one. And so if there had been a large population of tortoises on that island, he he doesn't know that this is the only one left. That won't become clear until years later. And in fact, it's not 100% sure, certain that that is the case. Maybe people are 99.9% sure there are no tortoises on that island, but people have looked in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. So, so Beck really is tasked with collecting specimens, and that's why the book is called Collecting Evolution. Mm-hmm. They don't go to Galapagos to support evolution or to refute evolution. They go to collect the specimens that would be the product of evolution, specimens that would then be studied by others later. So To, to the, today still. Until today, exactly. Yeah. And so at that time, in 1905 and 1906, there was no infrastructure for conservation, even though these scientists are all conservationists. Um, but they are preserving specimens essentially in alcohol, if you want to think of it that way, in a museum. Formaldehyde, isn't it? Formaldehyde yeah. or in alcohol or stuffed or any version of collecting, um, rather than preserving them in the field. So today we hear a lot, and justifiably, about saving species. Um, there used to be a time not too long ago when people wanted to save just species, but later the thinking changed to saving habitat. So if you save habitat, you can save the tigers, but um, more than just 
it's helping the tigers to reproduce. So it's really a habitat-based thing. Mm -hmm. But you need this infrastructure. You need national parks, and you need guards, and you need guides, and, and people to keep an eye on things. At that time, those barely existed even in the continental United States, let alone in, in a remote island group like the Galapagos. And so in the absence of that infrastructure, mm -hmm. really they were acting in, in a sense for reasons that they felt were justified, that they felt that the tortoises were fast disappearing. Right. They well, thought, let's, let's read about that fast disappearing part, okay? They thought it would be a, 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 a just a downright shame if they disappeared. Right. Because this is uh, observations that were made before that tortoise was collected. Correct. Okay. So the passage is, <clears throat> Beck witnessed human depredation as well and how that made the wild dog population worse. Quote, while at the ranch above a small town of Via Mill on the island of Albemarle, where nearly 50 men were at work, we were amazed at the reckless and heartless manner in which some of the natives destroyed the tortoises. The proprietor of the ranch informed us that only the males were killed, but we noticed that the working people made little distinction in the sexes when killing for food. Some evenings, two or three men coming in from different directions would each carry in his hand a small piece of tortoise meat and a pound or so of fat with which to cook with. Of each tortoise killed, not over five pounds of meat would be taken, the remainder being left for the wild dogs that swarmed about. Hold on. How big is a tortoise weigh? How much do they weigh? Uh, they, they weigh as much as a full American refrigerator. Much as a full American refrigerator. Yes. 500 some odd pounds. Yes. But when the, the females, what, 300? Perhaps. So 300. you're going to get five pounds of meat out of that. Right, and the rest is discarded. Sheesh. Okay. Um, so this is the end of the quote, and now my text. Uh, Beck further indicates the local Ecuadorians, uh, indicts. Beck further indicts. The local word, Ecuadorians yeah. for waste and destruction, observing, quote, um, One Saturday evening, I had an occasion to go down the trail a mile or so after some of the natives had departed for the shore settlement, uh, Puerto Villa Mill, where all the women and children lived. I found a large tortoise, three feet six inches long and hundreds of years old, which had been cut open with a machete, but apparently not more than three pounds of meat had been taken from it. A little further on lay a dead female, from which nothing had been taken save a string of eggs and very little meat. Uh -huh. Beck documented in words and photographs the damage done by oil hunters, not speculators in petroleum, but local Ecuadorians who hunted the tortoises for their oil. Like whale oil, tortoise oil was a valuable commodity in the maritime economy. Quote, I took two photographs at the waterhole where lay the largest number of tortoise skeletons. There were about 150 skeletons at this pool and half a mile away in another depression, about 100 more. While there were more skeletons at these two places than we saw elsewhere, frequently 10 or 15 were observed in other basins where the tortoises had gone for water." End quote. He explained how the oil collectors worked, quote, After making camp near a waterhole and killing the tortoises there, the collector brings up a burrow, 
throws a couple of sacks over the pack saddle and starts out to look for more tortoises, killing them wherever found. A few strokes of the machete separating the plastron, the interlocking bones of the belly side, from the body, and 10 minutes work will clear the fat from the sides. The fat is then thrown into the sack and the outfit moves on, end of quote. Beck's concern and disdain are palpable in these descriptions. So he sees the people, the indigenous Ecuadorians primarily, who are going there as a maritime food. They don't see it any different than catching a whale or a porpoise or something. Right, and they're, they're, that's only half the story. I'll tell the other half in a second. Okay. And the, the people in the islands are rendering the fat for oil, just right. like you would render the blubber of a whale right. or a whale ship for oil. And that oil is used for everything, cooking and, and whatnot. And uh, same as whale oil. So the, the, the demise of the tortoises is happening within the islands. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, and even before that, whalers from New England right. were coming to the whaling grounds of, of the Galapagos, which is where the story of Moby Dick takes place. The mm-hmm. real life story of Moby Dick takes place not far from the Galapagos. And those whalers uh, kept log books. So the goal was in about the 1920s or so to, to ask the question, how many tortoises did those whalers take? And the, 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 the summary was that, that uh, by going to each log book where they say, we took this many, we took that many, we took that many on these various dates and various years, uh, the conclusion was about 200,000 giant tortoises were removed by whalers for food later on. And the reason you can do that is that if you collect a tortoise and you bring it on board your vessel, You can let it run around on deck for a few days and it will defecate out its gut contents. Then you take the tortoise and down below decks, turn it upside down, strap it down with rope, and it will stay there with no food and no water for up to a year and then can be killed and the meat harvested for your crew when your crew have moved on, you know, to some other hemisphere from the Galapagos Islands. So Uh, let me interrupt here. We had a we had an author named Julia Witte who came in and wrote a short story about uh, a tortoise collected by Captain Cook, it is told, Mm -hmm. who then went to the Pacific and gifted the tortoise to the queen of uh, one of the islands. I'm trying to remember. Tonga. Tonga, right. And uh, that one lived to be 150 years or more, and is still the the carcass is still in the uh, garden of the palace Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So there, there are many really wonderful, interesting tortoise stories uh, coming from the Galapagos. But if you combine this um, internal killing of the tortoises for food and oil, mm-hmm. and then you add to it the external pressure from whalers coming and removing living tortoises for food some weeks or months down the road, um, it results in a picture of of, a, of dire of dire consequences right. for the tortoises. Right. This caused Walter Rothschild to write to uh, one of his colleagues that um, that in a hundred you know in 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 a short time that uh, it would. It's likely that no giant tortoises at all would exist in the Galapagos. And what Rothschild writes, what a damnable shame would it not be? And and so I have that phrase, a damnable shame, in my book. So that context is is present in motivating the California Academy of Sciences to get to the Galapagos before it's too late. So they had a sense of urgency. They are actually conservationists. So when you hear that all these tortoises are killed in the islands, then over 200,000 are 
taken by whalers. And then you add to it just a little factoid that Darwin's crew on the Beagle took 30 giant tortoises, and they ate them all on the way to Tahiti mm -hmm. and threw the shells overboard. Right. In that context, when you hear that the California Academy of Sciences took 266 tortoises and brought them back to San Francisco, and they're all still there, then it makes the Cal Academy's efforts seem not nearly as bad as all of well, that. Well, their uh, shells are all still there. The shells and, off, and some of the meat, some, uh -huh. some of the legs, the legs are, are preserved and turned in. So when the Academy collectors would get a tortoise, they would have to remove all of the, the guts in as much as mm -hmm. they could. But they constructed a fat on the deck of the schooner. And into that vat, they had a, a, a solution, a kind of slurry, thick solution of material that would dry out tissue, that would Basically desiccate salt. tissue. It's a kind of salt. It's like a, a material that people might know of if they know what a styptic pencil is ah. that you would use to stop bleeding when you cut yourself shaving. It's that exact material ah. um, dissolved in water. Interesting. So they would dunk them in this vat, and it would very much desiccate their tissue, and then they would be able to store them below deck um, to return to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So the material the academy collectors um, brought back is still available for scientific study, but none of these other specimens are, including the 30 that Darwin and the Beagle crew uh, right. took from the islands. So Rothschild tortoises, are they still alive? Some? None of Rothschilds are still alive. Uh, but Any offspring? Are, um, and not any offspring. Uh, there aren't any living specimens there. The museum is all of the preserved material that Rothschild yeah. had many collectors getting for him around the world. So uh, do we have some in the city? We used to have one in the, in the uh, Golden Gate Park. I remember when I was in young. the past, there yeah. were, and you remember they, that? they tended not to live you, you very long. You didn't live there, so no. Yeah, yeah. they sort of didn't they, they last ate plastic long. and things like that. I, yeah. I guess that was before my time in yeah. California. Um, oh well. All right. Well, we're going to go forward because we're running out of time. So I have to take us to uh, 1906. And you know what I'm going to talk about. Probably the earthquake. You guessed. Gee whiz, this is good. We're going to page 162. And we're going to look at one of our writers we, very, we love quite a bit here, uh, certain Jack London. And uh, if you could start there. Sure. All right. And I think just before I read this, it's worth noting that from the 1905-06 expedition, no species were made extinct. Uh, that's an important point to make. So, so although they did collect a lot of material, uh, they didn't have There's a an annotated list of it in the end of the book. Yeah. They didn't have a particularly negative um, impact. Uh, impact. So this this is... Um, I didn't mean to put you on the defensive. Oh, no. I, I, I like to give context. That's I like right. to give uh, supporting context okay. to a lot of these things. Jack London reported further, quote, All the cunning adjustments of a 20th century city had been smashed by the earthquake. The streets were humped into ridges and depressions and piled with the debris of fallen walls. The steel rails were twisted into perpendicular and horizontal angles. The telephone and telegraph systems were disrupted. All the great water mains had burst. All the shrewd contrivances and safeguards of man had been thrown out of gear by 30 seconds twitching of the Earth's crust. End of quote. Among the most notable losses was the California Academy of Sciences, a cherished institution which had two seven-story buildings at 844 Market Street between 4th and 5th. By 1906, its library held 15,000 volumes with a rare accumulation of periodicals, pamphlets, and other scientific publications. Also destroyed were even more precious natural history collections, including specimens that documented species new to science. 
The Academy's collections had been built through massive expeditions, including one to Mexico, as well as more local collecting up and down California and exchanges for duplicates with other collectors. Loomis, in his area of specialty, the Loomis, the director of the mm -hmm. Cal Academy, had gathered the largest seabird collection in the world. Although no one realized it at the time, these materials, the most precious things the Academy owned, were the most vulnerable to damage because they were stored on high floors and so vulnerable to fire in their wooden cabinets. Inadequate water supplies citywide in San Francisco in 1906 prevented firefighters from doing their job. And let's stop here, and I'll kind of describe the picture of the interior that you show in the book. It's basically um, balconies that rise up to seven stories high. They're not full floors. Mm -hmm. There's a, a huge open central area that goes all the way to the roof, I assume, or at least to the, to the attic. Yeah, it's like these uh, new hotels where they, like these Marriott's and yes. things, where they have an interior courtyard right. and all the rooms look into the courtyard. It's like that, but a museum. Yeah, yeah. And the, each of those, of course, if the fire comes, it's going to go right up the chimney. Right. Yeah. And that, that building was only minimally damaged by the earthquake. The building itself. The first ever reinforced concrete structure could have been repaired easily with maybe $10,000 of damage, but it was the fire that swept sort of inevitably and inexorably through San Francisco for three days right. after the earthquake that uh, got the academy and burned its entire contents. And people, I hope, know that the fire was started intentionally to stop fires. There, there, there probably were random fires started by chimneys toppling and coal, and a lot of people gas using mains. coal, yeah. gas mains. And there were some absolutely, late, a couple of days later into the fire, they'd had backfires that mm -hmm. they were trying to, dynamiting. To, to light and dynamiting, all of which was largely ineffective in right. putting out the fire ultimately. Yeah. But fortunately, that was insured and the earthquake wasn't the fire part of it. Right. Yeah. Or we wouldn't have a city today. There's a lesson here for all of us in this county. It, it's a very sad lesson. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. An aside. The most notable and heroic effort to save anything from the Cal Academy building before it was totally engulfed in flames was made by the botanist Alice Eastwood. The shaking woke the internationally known scientist from her sleep. From her Knob Hill apartment, she looked toward the Academy where she could see numerous small fires already burning. Realizing the potential magnitude of the disaster, she made her way to the academy to rescue at least some of the botanical collection. She entered the building with other staff members just two hours after the earthquake hit. She was accompanied by Director Loomis, also the librarian Mary Hyde, the insect preparator Carl Fuchs, and the reptile curator John Vandenberg, and Eastwood's friend, Robert Porter. The interior was, quote, as still as death, end quote, and damaged extensively, but remained in relatively good order. A bridge at the sixth floor suspended above a glass-roofed atrium connecting the Academy's income-producing property with the museum building in the rear uh, was still intact, but partially damaged. The bridge had ripped loose and fallen through the skylight over the atrium. An elaborate marble staircase leading from the second to the sixth floor was shattered, although the iron banisters remained intact. Alice Eastwood and the others carefully worked their way up the crumbling stairs to the fifth and sixth floors where the scientific records and manuscripts were stored. 
When working in the field collecting specimens, Eastwood had used torn strips of old undergarments to bundle up the pressed botanical specimens between layers of absorbent paper and cardboard, all held together by a frame of wooden slats. These plant presses, as botanists call them, which can expand to more than a foot thick when filled with specimens, press the plants flat in preparation for their eventual transfer to permanent sheets of thick paper. Eastwood and the others tied as many bundles of botanical type specimens as they could gather, 1,497 altogether, and quickly placed them in flat presses. These were no ordinary specimens. They were the voucher specimens for new species described by many authors over many years. Using makeshift rope, also strung together with strips of her old undergarments, Eastwood lowered the specimens to the ground floor. Eastwood saved only a single personal item from the building, her Zeiss lens for studying specimens closely. She would need it in the near future to help rebuild the collection. Loomis and Hyde climbed to the sixth floor and saved the only manuscript copy of Theodore Henry Hittell's History of the Academy, a book I found invaluable in researching the 1905-06 expedition. They also saved the Academy's records that I have relied upon. The destroyed library was one of the largest west of the Mississippi River. Carl Fuchs, along with Hyde, saved 264 type specimens of beetles, hemiptera, which are aphids, cicadas, leafhoppers, and their relatives, and wasps and bees and ants. The complete insect collection comprised 51,000 specimens. In the reptile department, the curator Vandenberg was able to save only 10 type specimens from a total collection of some 8,100, dating back to 1895. In anticipation that day of the arrival of the unstoppable fire marching through San Francisco, Loomis moved on to the birds and mammals department, where he gathered up only two type specimens of the now extinct Guadalupe storm petrel, named by the Academy curator Walter E. Bryan in 1887. With these few specimens removed, books and illustrations tucked under arms, the remaining tens of thousands of specimens of birds, mammals, plants, insects, reptiles, and fossils, and all the rest of the library were incinerated the same day the earthquake struck. Really, the losses were total. The best hope for the future of the Academy was the Galapagos expedition already underway and the tens of thousands of specimens stored below the decks on the Schooner Academy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we've got uh, a humongous conflagration that basically destroyed everything the Academy prized. Few things were collected by people, you know, scrubbling through dangerous conditions. Mm-hmm. Yes. To be ahead of the fire. And how long does it take before things get collected together and the people can put their heads on straight and say, hey, we need to build a new academy? They decide to build a bigger and better academy that same day. Okay. Uh, They show remarkable resolve. And it's notable that I've written this story, and I wrote it over a 20-year period, um, that has as a central character, if you will, the fire that destroys the academy. And then to experience what so many people in Sonoma County experienced in October um, was was really a a phenomenal experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, most of us grew up with the academy, the new building uh, in, in Golden Gate Park and 
right across from the De Young Museum and the uh, open space with the, you know, the music uh, shell, Spreckles shell, is that what it was called? Yeah, the music concourse. Yes. And uh, you walked down with, well, Benjamin Buffano's statues, are, they're still there, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Uh, a local sculptor, uh, kind of delineating the central courtyard with one wing on one side and one on another. And you come in these doors, and there in front of you is this equatorial, you know, weird water feature filled with crocodiles and caiman and alligators and all sorts of interesting things that you, as a young boy like I did, uh, could go and just gawk at. Right, And I, I, I agree very much that the Academy was this wonderful place. I think of that Academy that was opened in around uh, the 19-teens mm-hmm. and existed until about uh, 2005 or so. I think of that, in my thinking, as the old Academy. Right. And I would say that this book is very much an old Academy book. I, I researched agree. this book in the, in the old Academy. I went down all the back alleys in that old Academy. And then it, of course, was gutted. And now the third version of the Cal Academy is on the same footprint as mm-hmm. what I call the old academy. Right. So the first one on Market Street and then now really two different academies, very different academies on the same footprint in Golden Gate Park. Yeah, That one did not have a, a, a grass roof at all. Exactly. The living roof the living was roof. not on the old academy. Right. Uh, but many of us um, are very nostalgic for the old academy, I yeah. must tell you. Yeah. Well, and then you go to the planetarium and you go to the natural history exhibit museum on one side and then you go to the other side and you see these tremendous diamonds you know mm-hmm. displayed exactly. in the, the geology uh, oh, very much yeah it's a it's got a lot of memories yes. for many 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 people mm-hmm. millions i would say absolutely so the galapagos expedition is in fact the one that makes the academy have a collection Exactly so. And, and the, the Academy really became the center of gravity for specimen-based studies of Galapagos organisms um, all the way to the present date. They have more specimens than any other museum does. Um, in the Galapagos, there's a growing and, and very well-curated museum uh, that itself is, is gaining in, in tremendous strength. Um, but uh, many other museums undertook expeditions to the Galapagos, the museum at Harvard University, mm-hmm. the Field Museum in Chicago, mm-hmm. the American Museum in New York City. Um, many expeditions were undertaken, but none were as long or as extensive or f- as focused on the Galapagos as the Cal Academy's expedition. Right. So um, take us back to how we put this together. They arrive in, in port that the city is that they know is no longer there. Uh, were they greeted with bunting and flags, or was there even a wharf to go to? Uh, they were they were not greeted with any fanfare, and in fact, ironically, they almost lost it all right at the mouth of the Golden Gate. So um, that uh, that night they returned, mm-hmm. which is Thanksgiving night of 1906. The wind dropped, and they almost went aground outside the Golden Gate. This is, of course, the bridgeless Golden Gate. Right, right. So they're coming home in 1906. The Golden Gate Bridge is not built until the early 1930s. Mm-hmm. So it is very much the, the forts bridgeless. The fort's on both sides. The still. fort's on both yep. sides, the bridgeless Golden Gate. And they 
end up having to put out a boat, a rowboat, to try to row the bow of their ship around to get it away from the rocks. Mm -hmm. It's kind of reminiscent of a scene, if anyone knows, in the movie Master and Commander, where they row into the fog bank to to get away from the French. And they uh, are not successful in rowing the boat away from the rocks. But but a savior comes. But they are are picked up by, they're towed away by a crab fisherman in a kind of a boat that's called a crab smack. Mm -hmm. And uh, they pay him $20 to uh, tow them into into the harbor, and they um, throw overboard their old clothes that they've been wearing for a year because they didn't want to be held up by the health inspectors because they, the health inspectors might think they were diseased or something like well, that. They, so they, they had a they certain kinda, air about they them. They kind of yes. stripped down and threw all that old clothing yeah. overboard, and they wanted to get back to their, their families. And in fact, that was a crisis of conscience during the expedition when they found out 10 days after the earthquake and fire that the academy was destroyed, mm-hmm. when the news was brought out to the island by an Ecuadorian gunboat, and they wanted to, some of them wanted to leave and return to San Francisco to find out if their families were killed, sure. because they knew there were sure. substantial loss of life. Uh, but um, Loomis, the director, wrote to Rollo Beck the same letter every day. He would write this letter and send the same letter every day. And the letter was, when you come home, do not stop. Sail home nonstop. Do not go to, to any place. Don't go to Panama or don't stop in Mexico. The reason being that at that time they could have easily picked up disease if they went into a port. But also, if you go close to shore to enter a port, you could also run aground because the Schooner Academy had no engine. So it was always oh, it's all wind powered. It was all yeah. wind powered. Yeah. And they had long periods of time that they were becalmed in the Galapagos for over two weeks at a time. They couldn't do anything. They were just far away from the islands until the wind picked up. So Beck is instructed and follows the instructions not to stop. So they sail home nonstop. It takes them two months of sailing to get back to San Francisco from the Galapagos. And, um, and and Loomis is very well aware of the value and the importance of those specimens that are in the hold of the schooner. And it really does result in the continued longevity and success of the California Academy of Sciences. They owe it all, really, to the 1905-06 expedition. That's great. That's great. Okay, so they come back ashore. They finally uh, get deloused or whatever they have to do, get cleaned up, go and visit their loved ones. Uh, those who were still go and visit houses if they're still there. They obviously would be in Palo Alto. But other uh, people lost things during the fire and earthquake. Is that correct? Uh, of the members of the expedition? Yeah. They, um, some of them lived in places like Alameda, so, you know, they could go home there and uh, visit their families or in San Jose and, and places. Um, so so the, the losses experienced by the members of the expedition were not particularly great. All right. But the, but the treasures they brought back with them were? The, the treasures were invaluable. Right. And um, Loomis very much maintained the insurance policy on the Schooner Academy during the time that they were gone because he really wanted to make sure that everything was completely safe. And we're back to insurance again. Well, I want to thank you for joining us for the January 2018 Word-by-Word Conversations with Writers broadcast from North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today, Professor Matthew J. James took us back 112 years to join the hardy young men who spent a year and a day collecting specimens on the Galapagos Islands for the California Academy of Sciences. We were able to make this journey through the thoughts and research and wise words found in Professor James's book from Oxford Press, Collecting Evolution, The Galapagos Expedition That Vindicated Darwin. 
Our studio engineer is Anthony Garcia, our station manager, Sean Knight, our radio coordinator, Wendy Nicholson. Our podcast archivist is Mark Prell. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. We want to invite you to join us for the next Word by Word show right here on North Bay Public Media KRCB-FM at 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, February 11th in 2018. Until then, we leave you with some words from F.M. Dickey's poem, The Academy, which was read aloud at the schooner's champagne christening on June 23, 1905. I christen the Academy, and away the wine goes splashing. Its creamy foam is fit alone for a vessel brave and dashing. <laughs>